theyeshiva.net. Good evening, everybody. Agutavach. You are tuned in to uh, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly radio show on Saturday night, every Mitzvah Shabbos, 10 o'clock p.m. here at the Nachum Siegel Network. I want to welcome all of our listeners. I am actually live from Toronto. I was here at a Shabbaton, and I'm calling into our studio. Lee, is everything good? Can you hear me? Everything's really good, Rabbi. Okay, so let's continue, and I welcome all of you here. I spent the Shabbos with the beautiful community here at Flamingo in Toronto, and I'm calling in. I want to thank you, Lee, for running the show, and you can tune in to us now. You can call in or email your questions and remarks to rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. That's rabbiyyradio at gmail.com, or you could call in with your live Remarks and questions at 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444. Last week has been quite, quite an intense week for the Jewish community, but really for the whole world. (laughs) I mean, uh, the first thing that's extremely confusing is our relationship with Iran. I mean, look at this. In Yemen, America is supporting uh, the Saudi Arabia-led military campaign against the Iranian-backed rebels in Yemen. When we're dealing with Iraq and Syria, the United States is, uh, is on the same side as Iran in the fight against Islamic State. So in Yemen, we're fighting Iran. In Iraq, we're with Iran. And the Obama administration is racing to close a deal with Iran to remove economic sanctions in exchange for their restraints on Iran's nuclear program. So it's quite confusing. Then we have the story on Tuesday, the horrible tragedy with the German uh, airplane that went crashing into the French Alps. And as it turned out on Thursday, everybody found out it was intentional. The co-pilot, Lubitz, actually crashed the German wings flight number 9525 into the French Alps, killing himself together with 149 people. Today they're telling us that it was discovered that he was suffering from a mental illness, even though he was a good flyer, and there were actually no signs of any problems, which is why he was hired. And yet, he was healthy enough to fly, he was healthy and conscious enough to know exactly what to do in order to get that plane going down and crashing into the French Alps. He was smart enough to lock 
the captain out of the cockpit, and when the captain was pleading and screaming and begging for him to let him back in, he would not let him in, and as the block box indicated, he was breathing fine and steadily till the last moment. The captain tried breaking down the door, but it didn't work. I was reading about all these different types of solutions. What should be done? Now there's a solution that uh, you have to have at least two people in the cockpit, or you have to have more thorough psychological examinations when you're hiring a pilot. It's ironic. After 9-11, the main solution was you have to build new cockpits with tight security. Now the solution is you have to allow the captain to be able to get into the cockpit easier because that may have avoided the disaster. But the truth is that all of these solutions are very important to have two people in the cockpit, to have more security, to have uh, scrutiny and so forth. But these are all symptoms. I think what's not being addressed is something far more important than that is many people suffer from mental challenges and yet they're capable of distinguishing between good and evil when there is a strong emphasis on a moral education on an education of values i remember the when it happened the sandy hook tragedy in connecticut when adam lanza went and gunned down all of those innocent children Do you remember that and immediately the primary discussion in the nation was, are we giving enough help to people who are suffering from mental challenges and mental illness? Did he feel too isolated? Did he feel judged? Did he feel hopeless? Did he feel like a victim? And therefore, it motivated him to do this heinous act. But let's face it. We all know people on the spectrum of autism, and they would never, ever murder children. They're not in a state of absolute insanity where they don't know what they're doing. They may have very severe challenges. And the main issue is our world has to begin focusing on values and education. Don't just teach our children data, information, facts. Teach them the wisdom to know right from wrong. Teach them the values the eternal values and the primary value is that we ought to be kind and caring towards each other. We, of course, don't know the, all the truth about this, this fellow, this Lubitz, this German citizen who crashed the plane. Who knows what we're going to find out on, what we discover. We have to wait. But what we do know is that even people who suffer very serious challenges, you and I know people who are on the spectrum, and they're wonderful. They're so kind, they're so giving, they would never hurt a fly, they would never hurt a person. Because inculcated into the depth of their psyche and consciousness and every fiber of their being is moral values. Values that tell you that some things are wrong, are abhorrent, should never be done. But today, that's not the focus. Today, everything is relative. And values are opinions. They're not absolutes. They're opinions. And we're always distinguishing between facts and perspectives. And the idea that you're not allowed to take the life of another person is a perspective. And one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And when children in America and all over the world, in Europe especially, are growing up with an education that's devoid of absolute values of teaching our children that there are certain behaviors that are good and certain behaviors that are evil, that are negative. Taking the life of another person, hurting another person, crashing a plane into a mountain is evil. 
I think, even somebody who suffers serious challenges, but he was conscious enough and healthy enough to do what he did. But when you have such deep values, it prevents a lot of disasters. Let's not just speak about symptoms. Let's speak about the source of issues. You know, there is a big discussion in many Jewish communities recently about the Aguna crisis. The issue of men refusing sometimes to give a get, to give a divorce document to their wives, which will allow them, according to Jewish law, to remarry. Or sometimes it's the other way around. A woman who refuses to take a document of divorce. And there's a lot of discussion and so on and so forth. What are the solutions? What does halacha have to say about it? What can rabbis do? What can courts do? Etc. I think last week or two weeks ago, uh, Rabbi David Lichtenstein in his show, right after me at 11 o'clock, uh, had a whole hour with it with Rabbi David Cohen. But one of the most important issues is this. We have to inculcate in our children and our students and disciples that the most important thing in life is to be a man. Be a man. Be kind. You have a fight with somebody, okay. Let's be sensitive. Let's be humane. Let's be normal. Let's be kind to each other. Especially... If it's a former spouse, especially if it's a mother or father of your own children, one of the worst things we can do is when we start using children as missiles against somebody we dislike. It's so unfair. Various couples have come to me, have seen, they've used their children in their fights against each other. Do you think that's right? In your perspective, your wife may be the worst person in the world. But for the children, she is their mother. And from her perspective, her husband may be a horrible human being, and she may be right, 100% right, 50% right, 80% right, 1,000% right. But for her children, it's their father, their only father. We must be larger, and we have to be kind. We have to teach ourselves and our children the most important thing in the world is respect. Respect for another person, respect for another person's feelings, respect for another person's life. And kindness, this doesn't mean that we delegitimize pain, and this doesn't mean that a person should not be held accountable for wrong things they did. But what it does mean that all of us have to learn to be mentioned in this world, even if there are serious obstacles and serious issues and serious problems. You can call in if you want at 845-354-2444. You're listening to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly Saturday night radio show. And we're now, I'm, we're live from Toronto tonight here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can email us at rabbiyyradio at gmail.com with your questions, objections, remarks, comments. Or you can call at 845-354-2444. 845-354-2444. I want to tell you this lovely story. I heard this a number of years ago from my friend, a psychiatrist, Dr. Uh, Israel Suskind, a Yale graduate of 69. He shared with me the following story, and it's one of my favorite Hasidic stories, and it's about Pesach. We're preparing for Passover for Pesach, and he shared with me the following story that he has researched and claimed to have verified um, uh, quite accurately. And the story goes like this. This story happens in the Ukraine 
shortly after the Second World War in 1945. And in one of the cities there, you have various survivors from the war, and you have the Skulene Rebbe. You also have there the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe, Rabbi Baruch Hager. The Skulene Rebbe managed to get permission from the Soviet authorities to be able to bake a limited amount of matzah, which he did successfully. And he announced to the entire community that every Jew would be able to get one matzah for Pesach. He had enough matzahs to distribute for every Jew who was conducting a seder, one matzah. But for those who were conducting public seders, where they had many people, to them he would give each three matzahs. And... uh, this was, a, not, this was in the city of Chernovitz. I got it. The city of Chernovitz. I was, I was uh, procrastinating because I was trying to remember the name of the city. The city was Chernovitz in the Ukraine. And after the war, you had a lot of rabbis there, a lot of rabbis. And this is what the Skolene Rebbe offered to everybody. A few weeks before Pesach, the son of the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe, Rabbi Hager, comes to the home of the Skolene Rebbe. And the Skolene Rebbe, who of course knows who he is, gives him three matzahs for his father, who would obviously, he was a Rebbe, he was a spiritual Hasidic master, he would run a public Seder, and he gives him the three matzahs for the Seder. And the Skulene Rebbe gives the matzahs and expects Rabbi Hager to leave. But the son of the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe tells the Skulene Rebbe, he says, my father, the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe asked if you could give me another three matzahs from my father. Skolene Rebbe says politely, I would love to give you more matzahs, but as you know, I have such a small amount of matzahs, there's such a shortage of matzah this year, it wasn't easy to obtain, and if I give you extra matzahs, there will be other Jews at their seders who will be deprived from any matzahs. But the son of the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe did not give up, and like a broken or scratch, we would say a broken record, a scratched record. Today, I guess it's a scratched CD. Repeats it like a mantra. He says, my father, the Senate Vision Tzerebbe, asked if you could give another three matzahs. And the Skolene Rebbe again refuses. And he says again, but my father, the Senate Vision Tzerebbe, asked for another three matzahs. And this happens again and again and again. The Skolene Rebbe had a very soft and mushy heart. He was a very loving person. And at some point, he just, he melted, he gave in. And quite begrudgingly, he gives him the other three matzahs, disappointed, upset, because uh, he had so little. Anyway, a few weeks pass. It's now Erev Pesach. It's a few hours before the beginning of the holiday, before the Seder. And there's a knock on the door of the home of the Skulene Rebbe. And who shows up? Once again, it's the son of the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe who shows up. What do you want now? The Skulene Rebbe asks him. (laughs) You came for more matzahs? What now? And the man says, My father, the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe, sent me to ask you, do you have any matzah left over for yourself? Skulene Rebbe looks at him, and in a sad expression, he says, No. I left over one matzah for myself, but another Jew, a woman, came here a little while ago begging me for matzah 
and I couldn't say no to this Jewish woman, and I gave her my last matzah, I have nothing left for myself for my Seder. And the Seret Vishnitzer Rebbe's son takes out of a bag three matzahs, and he gives it to the Skalene Rebbe, and he says, My father, the Seret Vishnitzer Rebbe, anticipated that you would give away all the matzahs, and you would be left with no matzahs. And that is why he asked for an extra three matzahs, which he was safeguarding for you. And here are you th- your three matzahs to enjoy your Seder and fulfill the mitzvah of eating matzah on Passover. That's called living a life of dignity. And we're all capable of living this way in one form or another. This is what's called being a broad person, a large person, an expansive person. He took an extra three matzahs. Having the Skulene Rebbe think it was disgusting, it was selfish, it was narcissistic. But he was fine with that. Because he knew that as a result of that, the Skulene Rebbe would get matzahs. And I think the lesson for us is very basic. We have to go back to the basics and teach people respect. You don't embarrass other people. You don't denigrate other people. You don't shame other people. Life is not about revenge and scoring points. Life is about being an ambassador of love, of light and hope, and bringing God's light into the world in every situation, and even in every dark situation. And yes, when we become enmeshed in a fight and a battle, we become subjective. And we have to know that we're subjective. It's not a problem that you're subjective. It's not a problem that I'm subjective, but just be aware that you're subjective, and get objective perspective from somebody who's outside of the orbit of the fight, somebody who can help you see things clearly and help you transcend your nature, your instincts, even when you're stuck in it. And in all these situations, so much of the crises would be avoided if, you know, there's a certain amount you can accomplish on a judiciary level. And it's important. Courts have their place. And Lahavdil Bate Din have, of course, the central place in Jewish life. And rabbis have a tremendous responsibility to uphold the flag of justice and righteousness and fear of heaven and morality and ethics and truth and integrity. And the power of a rabbi is the power of his loyalty and dedication to Torah. The authority that a rabbi has is not because we believe in worshiping people. The authority that a rabbi has in Jewish life is because of the rabbi's absolute loyalty and dedication to the truths of Torah to the point that he puts his ego aside. He's fearless. All he wants to accomplish is communicate the words of Torah, communicate the words of Allah, communicate the words of Hashem. And that's the power of Allah in Jewish life that has sustained us for centuries and for millennia. But there's a certain amount that can be accomplished on a judiciary level. Much of life is lived in bedrooms and in kitchens and in homes and in conversations. And that is where kindness comes into the picture. If each one would teach our children to be mentioned under all circumstances. So many problems would be diminished. Because nobody gains from fights. Nobody gains from divisiveness especially not young children, you can call in to our radio show here. You're with Rabbi YY Saturday night. 
845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444. Or you can email us at rabbiyyradio at gmail.com. Let me read an email from... Michal, Michael, I couldn't agree with you more. I recently just took a teaching job at an Orthodox elementary school, and I was appalled by the fact that Derech Eretz respect did not seem like their top priority in teaching the students. How can we be raising a generation of people who believe that they don't have to treat every single human being with respect? The stories they tell of Gedolim, of great Jews of past generations, show their love and respect to every single human being, Jewish or not Jewish. Where is that respect today? They tell the story of the Chafetz Chaim, Gewaldik Amaisa. The Chafetz Chaim, once Friday night, came home, and he skipped Shalom Aleichem, and he skipped Eishas Chayel. Those are the songs we sing before the Kiddush. He picked up his cup of Kiddush and wine, made Kiddush right away, went to wash and started the meal. And in the middle of the meal, he welcomed the angels and he sang Eishas Chayel. And after the meal, one of the family members said, Rebbe, or father, or husband, whatever it was, whoever it was, why did you do this? Why would you skip such a custom? And the Chafetz Chaim said, we had a guest here. And the guest at the table, I saw on his or her face how hungry they were. They haven't probably eaten all day. Maybe they haven't eaten the day before. I did not want to delay the meal for them even for a moment. My shalom aleichem and eshazchayel I can do a little later. But I did not want them to go hungry, and that's why I felt the most important thing is to feed them right away. Now the Chafetz Chaim was a very religious man, and to say shalom aleichem and eshazchayel before Kiddush is very important. But he had his priorities straight. I'm going to tell you another story. This is from the Hasidic side. Though the Hasidim are very careful about Gebrachts. You know what Gebrachts is? Gebrachts is not to make your matzah wet. And in some Hasidic circles, they're not only afraid of making your matzah wet with water. You know, dipping your matzah into your soup. And the reason is because maybe one of the specks of flour inside the matzah was not baked. And if it comes in contact with water during Pesach, it can become leaven, it can become chametz. And chametz is a very serious thing, because even the masher, even a tiny crumb of chametz, is forbidden to eat. And so many communities have a very serious stringency on Pesach not to eat gebrachts. In the Chabad community, it's very serious. Besides the last day of Pesach. Once, on the, at the Seder of the 6th Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneers, in a blessed memory known as the Rebbe Rayatz, he uh, escaped the uh, uh, Nazi-occupied Warsaw in 1940 and arrived in New York, and he settled at 770 Eastern Parkway in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, and he lived on the second floor of the building, and he was having his Seder with many Hasidim. I mean, it wasn't that large of a crowd, but some many Hasidim there around the table, or he was having a Pesach meal there. And in, he noticed in middle of the meal that there was a commotion at the other side of the table. And he asked a chassid near him, I think it was Rabbi Shmuel Levitin, who happened to be my great-uncle, he said, what, what's happening, what's the commotion? And he told him, Rabbi Shmuel told the Rebbe, that there was this Jew on the other side of the table who wasn't so familiar with the Hasidic customs, and he dipped his matzah in the wine, which in Chabad is a no-no, no-no. He dipped it in the wine. So the yeshiva boys, or whoever was there around him, where, you know, they were giving him a piece of their mind. They were chastising him. How can you do it? 
And the Rebbe said these words, I'll say them in Yiddish. Besser, I write matzah, the aroitin ponim. Better to have a red matzah than to cause somebody a red face, blushing from shame. It's not that he didn't take seriously the stringency not to make your matzah wet with wine. But he knew that to embarrass somebody and cause them shame and cause them a red face. That's far more serious. That's not only a chumrah. That's not only a stringency. That's prohibited. And the Gemara says, the Talmud says above the Metziah, Better to throw oneself into a fiery furnace and not shame another person in public. And this must be a tremendous emphasis by us. What's this shaming people, abusing people, denigrating people? Let's be mentioned, let's be kind to each other, let's be nice to each other. Yes, everyone has to be held accountable, and if I made a mistake and I did a criminal act, I have to do tshuva and I have to be held accountable. But we need an atmosphere of respect. We need an atmosphere where we don't wallow in gossip and slander and cherish, cherish bad, nasty stories about people. I'm going to tell you one more story. We still have a lot to discuss. I want to discuss the Sassoon's this is soon tragedy also. We have a lot to discuss, but I'm just going to tell you another story because I love this story. And the story is that there was once a, uh, a Rebbe. He was actually, uh, his name was Reb Shmuel. Reb Shmuel, the Rebbe, they called him the Rebbe Maharash. And he had two sons. And the older son was shorter than the younger son. And they were playing in the backyard. And the older son, who was shorter, took his younger brother, who was taller, and he placed him in a ditch. And his father said, why did you put your brother in a ditch? And he said, because I am older than him, and yet he is taller than I am. That's not fear. By putting him in a ditch, I created equilibrium. Now I am taller than he is. And his father looked at him and he said, next time... You want to feel taller. Instead of throwing your brother into a ditch, you should climb onto a mountain. If I want to feel taller in life, I don't have to throw other people into ditches. I have to climb onto mountains. Yes, there's a certain delight of speaking negatively about people because it makes us all feel better. When we find out how terrible people can be, oh, I'm not so bad. You know what? Climb up on mountains. Don't throw other people into ditches. And if you are, if I am, we have to do a little introspection or a lot of introspection and get rid of the chametz, not in other people, but in ourselves. We don't check other people's homes. We check our own homes. Why don't I check your home? Because I have to get rid of the chametz in my home and in my psyche and in my heart. Not in your psyche and in your heart. You know, I was fascinated by another story this week, I don't know how many of you noticed this story, but do you know that in England, they did a second burial of King Richard. Do you know that? They reburied their king, King Richard III, who was slain in battle seven years before Christopher Columbus set sail for the New World. Richard III was born in 1452, and he was slain in battle in 1485. And he lay under a parking lot for centuries. For more than five centuries, he lay under a parking lot. And he was discovered in one of the stunning archaeological feats in British history. 
a few years ago, I think it was August 2012, I read about it. They found the skeleton of King Richard III, who many of you know from Shakespeare's play about him. He was one of the most uh, loathed and hated monarchs in British history. The story is that he murdered in cold blood two of his nephews because he did not want any ear to the British throne. And his brother was dead. He didn't want his children should grow up one day. And he murdered them. And he was known as this hunchback, nasty, nasty king. He was killed in 1485. And you know, because he was hunchback, they saw in the skeleton that it was him. First of all, there were accounts of witnesses of the area where they buried him. But then when they checked out the skeleton, they could see how he was carved. Obviously suffering from the illness that caused him, they called him the hunchback. And therefore they knew it was him. But then they tested his DNA and they matched it to relatives that are still alive today. I believe two relatives. That, uh, that are relatives of his, and it matched. So therefore, beyond a reasonable doubt, they came to the conclusion that this is the skeleton of King Richard III, and they did a huge funeral in England, thousands of people. Some people had to wait four hours to see the coffin that contained the, rema- that contained the remains of King Re- Richard in Leicester, England, just this Thursday. The Queen didn't show up. Well, I don't blame her. I understand her probably because there's a lot of talk and conversation. Does it make sense to make such a grand royal funeral for a man who was loathed after his death? Although there are some historians who say that it was his murder, the one who killed him, Henry, who ultimately reestablished the monarchy in England, who made sure to cast him in such a terrible light so that there wouldn't be any opposition to his own monarchy. Anyway, Queen Elizabeth didn't show up, but it's fascinating that the people love holding on to history. And even though he was considered a a murderer and a nasty man and a violent man, they want to hold on to history. So they did this this grand funeral. And I thought to myself, how valuable then is the experience of the Pesach Seder. You know, people often ask, how can I be sure that my children will share the Jewish values and beliefs that I hold dear? You know, the world has changed so much since I was young. I can only imagine how much more it will change by the time my children grow up. How can you pass on your convictions to your children? Learn from Moses. Learn from Moshe Rabbeinu. When the Jews came out of Egypt, he gave them a speech. And you know what he said in that speech? He didn't pick up a glass of whiskey and say, L'chaim, free at last, free at last. He didn't even make a tribute to those who died during the exile of Egypt. He didn't even speak about the struggles and the long march to freedom as in Nelson Mandela's title. Moses told the Jews two things. He told them, number one, I need you to tell the story to your children. Four times does he emphasize the need to communicate the story to your children. Because Moses understood that the euphoria of liberation and redemption fades away if you're not going to spend time 
inculcating the ideas of freedom, the ideals of liberty, the message of Pesach to your children. It will be wiped away with time. But he told them something else. Don't think you can communicate it to your children with words. Communicate it through action, through ritual. Eat that matzah and eat that mara. Don't meditate about freedom. Eat that matzah because he understood its actions that will prevail and will remain eternal. It's the crunch of the matzah that reminds us of the freedom. It's the red faces from the horseradish that commemorates slavery. It's spilling the wine for each of the ten plagues, searching for the afikoimon that brings Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim to life. Thousands of years of Jewish history suggests that living your beliefs through action, through ritual, through mitzvahs, Works. The Jewish people have survived with our message intact because we're still eating matzah. Lofty ideals are difficult to pass on. Crunchy, stale matzah stays fresh for millennia. So when thousands, tens of thousands of English men and women went to bid farewell to King Richard III for the second time, because the first time he was just buried in haste, we will be eating history and be holding on to the same food that our ancestors ate 3,000 years ago and telling the story to our children. And that's a moving. That's, that's very powerful. Friends, you can call in. You're listening to Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly radio show. You can email us at rabbiyyyradio at gmail.com or you can call in to 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444. And we have here emails are coming in, people raising their questions. I saw this show is going to be a tribute to the Sassoon family. Yes, you're 100% right. And we are going to go over to that to that very, very difficult and really unfathomable subject. Lee, can you give us the song? You know, what should I tell you? What should I tell you, my dear friends? Many Jews, many friends, many people have been absolutely heartbroken as a result of the tragedy that happened last Friday night when a fire in Midwood in Flatbush in Brooklyn, New York took the lives of seven angelic children of the Sassoon family. They have lived for many years in the Holy Land in Israel. Their friends described this family as an incredible family. Fun and, and loving and generous and selfless and, and, and cohesive. And they just moved to New York, to America, I believe two years ago. The father, Gavriel Sassoon, was away for Shabbos at, 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 a, at a religious conference. The mother was home with her eight children on Shabbos. She was supposed to leave for Shabbos. She was supposed to leave for Shabbos. But because of the snow that Friday, she decided to stay. And apparently, the hot plate in the kitchen created this fire and seven children passed away in, in, these, in these blazing flames. The mother and one daughter jumped out of the window. They're critically ill in the hospital and they don't even know about, about the tragedy. 
And Sunday, the funeral took place in Borough Park for the seven Kinderlach with the father present, eulogizing them. And then Monday, Monday in the Holy Land, uh, where they were buried in Haram Anuchas, near Jerusalem. And uh, people are heartbroken. People are devastated. Such a tragedy. So, so unfathomable. You know, the famous Vart of the Ostrovtse Rebbe, Rabbi Chilmeir of Ostrovtse, he speaks about the fact that when Judah, Yehuda, is pleading for Benjamin, for Benjamin, to the Prime Minister of Egypt, Yosef, he of course doesn't know it's his brother Yosef, and he says, you know, you took my brother as a slave because he apparently stole your goblet, and they took Benjamin, Yosef took Benjamin as a slave, and he says, I cannot go back to my father, to the old man Yaakov without Benjamin. His soul is intertwined with his soul. There is no way. Can I come to my father without a child? I can't. I just can't do this. And this is what breaks Yosef's heart. He melts away and he discloses his identity. He says, And the family is reunited. And the question is, why didn't Yehuda tell Yosef? You know, Binyamin left ten children at home. Benjamin had 10 children. He left 10 children at home. He doesn't mention that. He mentions the fact that he has an old father who lost his wife, who lost already Yosef, and he's now going to lose another child, the only child from Rachel surviving. He won't survive. And the structure ever says that the pain of a parent losing a child is, is beyond, is beyond. And uh, this wasn't one child, this was seven children. What's there to say? We want to hug them. We want to embrace the family. Many people couldn't sleep the whole week. All, you know, terrible thoughts, terrible tragedy. Gavriel, the father, spoke. He was very moved from the fact that people came to the funeral. He thought to himself, he said, who would come, who would show up? And he saw that thousands of people came, which was very moving just to show him that he's not alone in the world. You know, people often ask, I'm going to the shiva call, what should I say? Don't say anything. You just want to show people that they're not alone. They're not alone. And Gavriel said he felt that he wasn't alone. The Jewish people want to be with him. They want to support him. They want to comfort him. I'm in awe of, of his eulogies. Did you hear his eulogies? Did you read his eulogies? Did you read the interviews he gave? When the seven children, brothers and sisters, were laid to rest in Jerusalem on Monday at Haram and Nuchis, their father eulogized them. He spoke about them. Sunday also at the Shemri Adas Chapel in Borough Park. He, he spoke, he said, I lost everything in the fire. There's only one way to survive this, complete and total surrender. He described each of his seven children. He said, you know, Ilana, she came out fighting, even as a child, she was all the way, going to the maximum. Rivka, she had so much joy, she gave joy to everybody. David, he was so fine, a gift from Hashem, a true gift. Yeshua was so joyful and creative, always trying to make others happy. Moshe was always beaming, he was beaming. He tried so hard because he had learning problems, but he tried so hard. He was an inspiration because he tried so hard. Sarah was the cutest. Yaakov just wanted everyone to be happy. He was the youngest. 
He was the clown. I love my children, Gavriel Sassoon said on the Israeli TV. I know that they are the image of Hashem. There are things in which it is easier to see the image of God like children, but God can be found everywhere, even in these sacrifices. It's difficult to deal with, so we make the blessing of Diana Emes. It's easy now to relate, but I don't know how things will be in a week. How will I sit at my Shabbos table without my children? How can I fulfill the mitzvah of Egadata Levincha on Pesach? I had so much nachas for my children. They were really special children. I have had difficulties in my life, but never bothered me because I had my kids. The happiness they brought me made my life easy. Now I don't have them. I don't know what I will do. We were privileged to have children like this. But then Gavriel said something. He said, I know that I can say to God that the children that you asked us to watch for you are as pure and as holy now as when you gave them to us. I give them back as pure and holy as when you gave them to us. It's heart-wrenching, my friends. It happened last Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of the month of Nisan. In this week's parasha, Parasha Shmini, we learn about a fire that consumed two children on the same day, the first month of Nis- the first day of the month of Nisan. The day that the sanctuary, the Mishkan, was erected. Aaron's two sons, the high priest's two sons, not the Benavi, went in and they died in a blaze in the Eish Zara. And Moshe tells his brother Aaron, this is what God said, I'm sanctified through my closest. Aaron, and Aaron was silent. This year, we lost not two priests, we lost seven princesses. Seven of the most beautiful and holy children in a Shabbos blaze. What can we say? We are silent. We're devastated. We're heartbroken. Somebody sends an email, rabbiyyyradio at gmail.com. What does one tell their children? Do you speak to your children about Of course we have to speak to our children about it. And we have to tell our children the truth. We don't know the reason. We don't know the reason for such suffering, for such agony, for such pain. You know, people are traumatized by the story of what happened. and children. It's just a horrible story. We don't know the reason. We do know that a person is made up of a body, but primarily made up of a soul, and the soul is eternal. And these souls are, are, are in God's bosom. These souls are, are in heaven. These souls are fine. They're great. All of these seven children. And the souls are eternal. Souls never die. Souls never perish. The souls were there before we're born. The souls are there after we die. But, but we don't know the reason. An email comes in. Are we allowed to ask questions? The greatest Jews asked questions. Avram Avinu asked questions. Moshe Rabbeinu asked questions. Yirmiyahu Anavi asked questions. Eoiv asked questions. Avram Avinu tells God, Hashayfut Chalaret Layasim Mishpat will the judge of the whole world not do justice. We're not afraid. Jews are not afraid of questions. You know, I... On Pesach, many people sing the Chad Gadi. You remember the Chad Gadi, that wonderful song about that goat that we do at the end of the Seder? You remember that song? Now think about that song. We have a goat, an innocent goat that my father bought for two zuzim. For two zuzim, my father bought it, and what happened? 
This nasty cat came and bit my goat, wanted to kill my goat. So the cat is nasty, right? The goat is innocent, the cat is nasty. So the dog comes and bites the cat. So the dog is the good guy because the cat is the bad guy because the goat is the good guy. So now... <laughs> so we have, right... We, so we have the, the cat is the bad guy, the, the, the dog is the good guy, right? Then we have... Remind me the Chad God, I'm already after my four cups of wine. So then we have the guy who comes and strikes the, the dog. So he's the bad guy, right? So then we have, what do we have? So we have the fire that comes and, and, and burns the stick, right? So the stick is the bad guy, so the fire is the good guy. So we have the water that extinguishes the fire, so the water is the bad guy. So we have the ox that drinks up the water so the ox is the good guy. So we have the shaykhet who slaughters the ox so he's the bad guy. So we have the angel of death who kills the shaykhet who's the good guy. And how does it end? God kills the angel of death. So who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Isn't that strange, friends? The night of Pesach, we've seen Chad Gadia. The goat is innocent. The cat is nasty. The dog is innocent. The stick is nasty. The fire is innocent. The water is nasty. The ox is innocent. The shaykhet is nasty. The Malach is innocent. And what's with HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Can you explain this to me? So Ibn Asin Adler said that the dog did not bite the cat because he wanted to protect the goats. The dog bit the cat because the dog likes a fight with the cat. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have a person who did something wrong, and then somebody gets up and starts screaming and hollering and makes bands and screams, and it, and it sounds like he's a zealous, zealot for truth and for justice. No, he just loves a fight. And wherever he can find an opportunity to fight and beat and crush and denigrate and gossip, he will find that the dog is not biting the cat because it cares about the goat. The dog is biting the cat because the dog wants to bite, and it just has a good excuse. Not bad. But I want to just tell you one more thing. You know, Pesach is the holiday of faith. It's the holiday of Amunah. Some people feel that in order to nurture faith, you have to repress questions. That's not the truth. That's not the truth. Faith is not undermined by questions. A question doesn't weaken faith, and an answer doesn't strengthen faith. It operates on a different level. Faith is rooted in the essence of the neshama, in the essence of the soul, that has an intimate relationship with God. And we don't have to be insecure about it. We don't have to crush questions. We don't have to make fun of questions. We don't have to denigrate questions. Questions operate on the level of intellectual inquisitiveness and curiosity. But like always, like all people, our brains are finite. So on the holiday of faith, in Chad Gadya, we tell our children, I want you to know that when you look at the world, it often looks like a very unjust place. And it seems like God is the one who is, hmm, who is doing things that are really incomprehensible to us. And you know what? We still have a relationship. Even as we acknowledge how little we understand. The questions are coming in. Let me take a question by David. 
What do you think about the approach of saying that tragedies like this are an atonement for the Jewish people's sins? Or saying something like the Jewish people are deserving of Gehino, of purgatory, of hell of fire. And this is a kapara. It's an atonement for all of our sins. Let me tell you, my dear friend David, I don't know who is in the position, who is a prophet that was appointed by God to be able to explain why these poor little kindalach had to die and that it's an atonement for the Jewish people. It seems to me that after what the Jewish people have been through over the last 2,000 years, all of our sins have been atoned for. 70 years ago, 6 million Jews were exterminated, a million and a half children, millions of tzaddik and kedoshim and tohidim. What sins justified? Such mass murder in the millions of innocent people. The Talmud says that when Rabbi Akiva was being tortured by the Romans, the Romans executed Rabbi Akiva and they flayed his body with iron combs, they were saying Shema Yisrael, and the angels in heaven looked at God and they said, Zu Torah Zu is this the reward for Torah? And God did not say, Rabbi Akiva is getting atonement, this is an atonement. God said, Shtoik be silent, Kach Ola This is my will, this is my thought. I don't feel that we have to rationalize and explain and justify God. We must admit here that we don't get it. We just don't understand. It's unfathomable. I don't know why it happened. I really don't know why it happened. I do know that we love those children. We want to be here for their mother. We want to be here for their surviving daughter. We want to pray for them. We want to be there for their father. We want to remember them forever. And we want to use them as a source of inspiration for our lives to add goodness to the world and to never forget how dysfunctional Gullus is, how dysfunctional a world without redemption is, to never think that the prosperity that we have today, this is the ultimate destiny of the world and the Jewish people, to never forget how horrible this Gullus is. That's how, that's how I think uh, a part of, our focus, part of our focus has to be. That's my opinion. Uh, let's see, there are other questions there are other questions here. So how would you explain to your children to your children what happened? Listen, listen. <laughs> I don't have I don't have an explanation. I would be very vulnerable and very honest. Our children more than anything need our presence. They need our presence. They need us to look them in their eyes, to hug them, to embrace them and to tell them. We're with you. Life is a mystery. There are many mysteries. We're here on a journey. We don't know when the journey ends and why the journey ends. I'm going to tell you a very powerful insight. They say it in the name of the Vilna Gon. I don't know if it answers questions. I just think it gives a little perspective in a dark hour. What should I tell you? He asked the following question. We say it in the prayers of Yom Kippur. We speak about the fact that when Rabbi Akiva was being slayed, being tortured by the Romans, the angels asked God for the reason. And God told the angels, if you do not shut your mouths, 
I'm going to revert the world back to chaos. The world is going to become nothing, like before it existed. It's going to become a place of toyu vavoyu. That's what we say in the prayers of Yom Kippur and the Avoida. And the obvious question is, what type of response is that? The angels are asking a good question. Why is a righteous man like Rabbi Akiva being killed by the Roman monsters? Hashem could say, you don't understand. I don't want to tell you. It's none of your business. You don't run the world. Why does he choose to tell them, if you do not shut your mouth, I'm going to return the world back to chaos and nothing? I say, come on. Is that a response? Imagine your wife asks you a question that you're not comfortable with, and you say, if you continue to ask questions, I will demolish this entire home. And I would say, you need therapy for anger management. This has nothing to do with her question. This has to do with your own issues. Why does Rebunish let him respond this way? And he gave the Vilna Gaon, gave the following metaphor. There was once a, uh, a king who uh, obtained this most precious silk, and he he summoned his Jewish tailor and he said, I want you to turn this in to a beautiful royal cloak garment for me. And you have a few months, three months. And the Jewish tailor worked three months on this uh, garment and he finished it. It was something out of the world, out of this world. And he comes to the king and the king gets dressed in this cloak. And uh, it's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's dazzling to the eye. And like in every good story, there's always an anti-Semitic bishop, right? And the bishop tells the king, he says, how do you know that the Jewish tailor didn't steal some of this uh, precious uh, silk material for himself? He says, no, he's an honest man. He says, I think we have to make an investigation. And sure enough, they had the measurements of the original silk, and they measured the cloak, and they saw that the cloak fell short. There was more material, and the Jew is arrested. He's tried, and he's thrown into the dungeon for treason. Can you understand the chutzpah? He stole the private, personal, priceless silk that the king obtained and gave him to weave into a royal garment, and part of it he stole for himself. And they, they, they tried him, and the sentence was death sentence. Everyone has their last wish. So what's his last wish? His last wish is, he says he wants to be brought before the king, and he wants to be given this cloak together with a scissor. And he's brought before the king, and they give him this beautiful garment, and they give him a scissor, and he takes the scissor, and he puts it into the cloak, and he starts cutting. And the king says, what are you doing? He says, I have to cut open the garment. He says, no way. Why are you ruining this beautiful garment that you made? He says, because I am innocent. I did not steal any of the material. The king says, we measured it. The Jew says, I will prove to you that every part of the material was woven into this garment, but in order for me to be able to prove it to you, I will have to undo the entire garment. I would have to lay it bare. I would have to remove every thread and open it up to the way it was when I received it, and then you will see that every strand and every thread can be accounted for, and I stole nothing. The king, of course, let him live. When the angels asked God, why? Hashem was not responding in anger. He was telling them that if you want me to explain this to you, if you want to understand... 
I have to take the world back to the state of nothingness the way it was before creation. I have to undo the entire garment because your perspective is so limited. It's like reading a book. The book is 3,000 pages long and you read a few chapters in the middle. Can you understand what is happening in these chapters? You have to have perspective. You have to read from the beginning of the novel till the end of the novel. We live during our period in history and we use our intelligence to try to figure out what can we already figure out? What can a finite brain a, pre, a, a fathom of an infinite being that created the human brain. Our entire brain is a creation by God. How could the human brain even begin to understand what life is, what death is, what justice is, what goodness is? We are quite clueless. So God tells the angels, you want to understand? I have to bring the world back to the beginning, to a state of nothingness, and then you will see that every threat can be accounted for. You will see that there's purpose and meaning in everything. But in the present world, you really can't understand it. I would just say one more thing, friends. There's a reason God did not tell us why such pain happens in the world. He doesn't want us to understand because our job is not to understand. Our job is to protest. Our job is to change things. Our job is not to understand why so many people suffer. Our job is to do whatever we can to make an end to suffering in the world. If we would perhaps have had the ability to comprehend the purpose of agony and suffering and misery, it would have not bothered us that much. But we ought to be bothered. We ought to be perturbed. We ought to do everything we can to help out people in pain, not to understand the secret of pain. And we ought to turn and say, Ad Masai, you know it's Oyev Shimchalanetzach. Ad Masai Tastir Espanechamimeni. How long will you conceal your face to me? How long will you allow the world to be so dysfunctional? And how long will you deprive us from that which you wanted us to dream of and wait for and hope for and anticipate? Redemption and peace. Friends, friends, tonight we pay tribute to the Sassoon family, to the beloved Sassoon family, to Eliana, to Rivka, to Sarah, to David, to Yeshua, to Moshe, to Yaakov, Zecher Tzadikim Levracha, of everlasting memory and inspiration. We pray for their mother, for Gila Bas Francis. We pay, pl- pray for the daughter, Chipoira Bas Gila. We embrace the father, Eb Gavriel. And we say, listen, we don't understand. We're just here for you. We're here together. We will always be here for you. And we pray tonight that Bila HaMoves Lonetzach May the tears be wiped away forever with the speedy redemption through Mashiach Tzitkenu coming. Thank you very much. To all of you, may this be a year and a holiday of true redemption. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.